0: Luke chapter four fourteen 14 through 30, and as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me, and before we do look at this portion of God's word together, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your goodness. We thank you that your goodness is most fully manifested and that you have not kept your word from us how we need every word that you have breathed out, how we need your spirit, Lord Jesus, to instruct us, to convict us of sin, to humble us, to bow us low before the presence of your majesty, and then to lift us up so that we might hear that word that you had uttered so many times in the days of your ministry. Do not be afraid. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would give us a new sense of all that we have in you, And that we might worship you and your Father and your Spirit together for the glory of your name and your grace to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in Luke 4, Jesus has uh, been anointed at his baptism with the Spirit. He has been driven by that same Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And now we find Jesus preaching his first sermon in that synagogue in his hometown In Nazareth, and we read these words, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, that's not going to last long, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own town as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. I told you it didn't last. And they rose up and drove him out of the town And brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a quite famous proverb that has floated around in ministerial circles, perhaps you'll hear it in seminaries or in other ministerial settings where pastors are gathered together. And that proverb goes something like this, the people who most want you to come to the church at the beginning are the people who are often the first who want you to leave. That's, that's many men have taken comfort in that actually. The people who most wanted you to come at the beginning of your ministry are often the very same people that are the first to want you to leave. Now, that has been true in church history. It was true of the great reformer John Calvin. We are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this month. 500 years ago this month, when God did a mighty and great work of reforming his church according to his word. And John Calvin, the greatest of the reformers, that Genevan reformer had been brought sort of against his will, urged to come to Geneva and to bring reform and to institute Protestantism and to preach the doctrines of grace and the gospel and the word of God, and in a sense to set people free from the bondage they were in under medieval Catholicism, the penitential system, the indulgences, the idol worship, the the iconography, the papacy, and all the other abuses, and Calvin was used by God singularly to bring about this great reformation of God's grace in the gospel. And yet, sometime in the later uh, 1550s, Calvin found himself at odds with uh, the councilmen in Geneva. So great had been the reformation that it had become a Christian city, um, the greatest... Christian city ever to exist in all of human history, perhaps, you might argue, outside of Israel. And, and John Knox once said of Geneva that it was the most perfect school of Christ he had ever encountered. And yet Calvin began to feel tension with the councilmen because the councilmen took to themselves the ministry of the sacraments and they determined that anyone who moved to Geneva, anyone who became a citizen, should have a right to come to the table. And Calvin, knowing that God had reserved the table for those who professed faith in Jesus and to be administered by ministers of the gospel, went at odds until he and Pharrell, his mentor, were exiled from Geneva by the councilmen and by all the people who then went and named their dogs after John Calvin. Now, they will beg him to come back three years later, and he will begrudgingly come back to the same people that drove him out, who had begged him to come in the first place, and God would continue to do great works, but that is actually not all that uncommon. A story about the greatest of ministers in church history. It is not uncommon in the life of the Lord Jesus. Here at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus has been baptized. He has received that divine affirmation, you are my son and you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit has come down on the Savior in the form of a dove, anointing him for his messianic ministry as prophet and priest and king. He has been then driven into the wilderness to go hand-to-hand combat with the evil one. He has Conquered the evil one, and now as he begins his ministry, he returns to the very place where he grew up. And this hometown boy goes into the synagogues as he was accustomed to, and he preaches what very well may have been his first sermon in his hometown to the people that he grew up around. Now, first sermons are very special. I'll never forget how terrible mine was, and I'll never forget how excited I was, and how I didn't care that it was terrible because I got to preach. Um, Jesus' sermon is far from terrible It is the best sermon you could have ever heard Now imagine for a moment though How many terrible sermons Jesus had to listen to Oh yeah Think about this Jesus knows the Bible perfectly He knows it's about him He He knows how all of it imports into him At 12 he knows the Bible Better than the theologians The best theologians in Israel He astonishes them With his knowledge of the Bible Now think about, from 12 to 30, how often Jesus would be sitting there. That is not what this passage is about. I mean, I'm right here. (laughs) But he has to wait, his time has not yet come, and now that he's been anointed, now that God the Father has sent him out on his public ministry, his time has come. And so we're going to see this morning four things as we look at this. First, we're going to consider the hometown preacher, And then we're going to consider the hometown message, the hometown blindness, and finally the hometown malice, the hometown preacher message, blindness, and malice. Well, as I've noted, and Phil Reichen makes this point so well, if anybody had a right not to go to church, it was Jesus. (laughs) All the wrong sermons he would hear, if anyone could complain, my church doesn't preach the Bible faithfully— it was Jesus, and yet Jesus is in the synagogue. Jesus is going to the place of worship. He is gathering together, as it were, every Lord's Day. He is in the midst of the assembly of God's people. That is the place where he wants to be. This is what Riken says. He says... Um, He says, if anyone has the right to think that he didn't need to go to worship, it was Jesus. Imagine how many times he had to sit through the below average teaching, how easy it would have been for him to say that he didn't need to go to the synagogue, that he could commune with his father better somewhere off by himself. Yet throughout his life, Jesus maintained a regular pattern of public worship. Notice what Luke says here at the very beginning of our text in verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 16, he came to Nazareth. Where he was brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus is here showing us not just what it meant for him as the redeemer to fulfill his work. He is showing us what it is for him as a man to do what is pleasing to God. God is pleased with his people setting aside the Lord's day to worship. God is pleased with his people gathering to be under the ministry of the word. Now, in Jesus' day, they met on Saturday. We meet on Resurrection Sabbath, a new covenant, the first day of the week. Um, And yet, there's a similarity. If you went back and you looked at the sort of things they did in the Sabbath, it would look vastly more like our liturgical churches today than it would look like our entertainment-driven churches. So if you went back into the Old Covenant church and looked at what they did in worship, it would look more like what we find in perhaps a Reformed church, than what we would find in gimmicky churches. There was prayer. There was the reading and singing of psalms. The centerpiece was the preaching of the Old Testament. We're going to see that today. There were all those elements that, that coalesced and that God had ordained in his word for the building up of his people. Chief among those was the preaching of the word. And so notice as this hometown boy has come into his own hometown synagogue, knowing all the people in there, it came time that Luke says he stood up to read. Now, again, we don't know if Jesus had ever read the scriptures or preached the scriptures in the synagogue. Uh, This may have been the first time. It may have happened quite a number of times. I think the details in the text seem to indicate that this was the very first time Jesus ever got up before these people, and did this because they were astonished. They had never seen him, perhaps. They had never heard his great wisdom. They had heard about him. They had heard about things he was doing from outside of their town, but now he's come home, and the first thing that Jesus does is he stands to read from the prophet Isaiah. Now, before we look at the message, it's important for us to understand what a great grasp Jesus has on the scriptures. Now, we are blessed to have Bibles, and I am blessed to see you open your Bibles, and I am encouraged to hear you read, that you read your Bibles. Uh, I was thinking about this this week, you know, we have so many books in our home, so many Bibles, and yet, am I training my children to be loving the Word of God and reading it for themselves? What good does God's Word do if we don't read it? Here, Jesus knows Scripture so well that he takes the scroll of Isaiah, which would have been a long scroll because Isaiah is a big prophet. They had different books. They weren't bound together. The scribes had transcribed them and transmitted them. And in Hebrew, in perhaps what we now know as the Masoretic text, Jesus takes that scroll and he begins to unravel it. And he finds in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, they didn't have chapter divisions. They didn't have verse numbers. I want you to get how great this is. Jesus takes the scroll. I mean, my Hebrew is so remedial. I'm just struggling through one chapter. He just unrolls the book, and he finds the very prophecy from which he is going to read that morning, which is about him, and he locates it, and he reads it to them. Now, that shows what a grasp Jesus had on the scriptures. He learned that. He studied. He labored. This was not... He didn't, by osmosis, just know the Bible. Jesus didn't, again, God didn't just do a divine download into Jesus. Jesus poured over the scriptures as a child, as a boy, now as an adult. And so as he comes in the synagogue and it's his time, he then reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And you'll notice there in verses 18 and 19 that Luke gives you exactly what he read. On that Sabbath, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, Why did Jesus choose this passage? We don't know. The spirit of God was upon him. Isn't it interesting? The role of the spirit. He had come down on Jesus at the baptism. He had then driven Jesus into the wilderness. And now, I think in a very real sense, Jesus is illustrating in preaching that special function of the Spirit who was indwelling him perfectly by preaching a passage about the anointing of the Spirit for the proclamation of the word that the kingdom of God had broken into time and space. That with him coming into the world at that time and in that place to do all that he was sent to do, God was breaking into the very world that was rebellious and fallen and under the darkness and bondage of sin and Satan. And here Jesus appeals to this passage while he demonstrates the very thing this passage is saying. It is a passage about the Spirit of God on the Redeemer proclaiming, preaching. Now, John Wycliffe, who you all will know, gave us one of the very first translations of the English Bible. Another reason you should read it, because Rome kept it in Latin for thousands of years so you couldn't read it. And um, Wycliffe, who labored tirelessly to give us English, uh, the English Bible, once said in a sermon on this passage, on this very part of the passage we're looking at, that the greatest good deed that men can do is to preach the gospel to their brethren. You know, we sometimes fail to think of this. Jesus was a preacher. Um, Preaching is demeaned in our day. People demean preaching. People don't want preaching. Uh, Preaching is God's centerpiece of the inbreaking of his kingdom in the world. If you are going to heaven, it's because you're going, because you've heard the preaching of the gospel, and by God's grace have responded to the preaching of the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And here Jesus shows us at the outset of his ministry that the main thing that he came to do, besides hanging on the tree to fulfill all things, was to proclaim the message of God's grace to sinners. Now, that brings us secondly to consider uh, the hometown message. What was it that Jesus was doing? Well, notice he appeals to a portion of Isaiah, and this is very important. If you read it in Isaiah 61.1, uh, it says exactly the same thing you read here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, Jesus is going to say, when he comes to uh, do his exposition of this this text, he's going to say, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. That's, That's his whole sermon, or at least the part Luke highlights. Today, this is fulfilled. Now, that opens the question, well, did Isaiah say this? Wasn't Isaiah the one speaking in Isaiah 61? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Wasn't that Isaiah? No, it wasn't Isaiah. It was Christ speaking through Isaiah in the prophecy of Isaiah 700 years before Jesus came. And now in the flesh, the same son of God is reading that and saying, this was about me. This was speaking of me. This was pointing to me. And I have come to fulfill this. Uh, John Calvin, wondering how and trying to explain how it was that Jesus is is saying, I was speaking in Isaiah, because that's what he's saying. Calvin says, As that redemption was to be proclaimed in the name and authority of Christ alone, he uses the singular number. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Singular. Upon me. He uses that singular number, Calvin says. And speaks in the name of Christ that he may more powerfully awaken the minds of the godly to strong confidence. Um, by the way, Charles Spurgeon said, if a man doesn't preach Christ, he should go home. Preach Christ or go home. <laughs> that's all we have to preach. Incidentally, that's all Jesus had to preach. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus was a Christ-centered preacher. He is the Christ. And he is expositing for the people what is happening? Well, we can imagine he unpacked this more. And what does, what does Jesus mean when he, he refers to the different people in the passage in Isaiah? Notice verse 18. He has anointed me to proclaim, and then he's going to give four. Good news or the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, And to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, was Jesus speaking of the financially poor? Not preeminently. No, he was not. That would be a mistaken reading of this passage. Was Jesus speaking of those physically enslaved? No, not preeminently. He was not. Was Jesus speaking of those who were literally blind? He healed the blind, right? He cared for the poor, right? Not preeminently. And then... Is Jesus speaking of those who are situationally or circumstantially oppressed? Not preeminently, no. He is speaking in spiritual terms. And we know that because of the last line. Notice verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus is uh, referring back here to Leviticus 25. And, and the people knew what he was appealing to. He was appealing to that, that place in Leviticus uh, that talks about what we call the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was that one time every 50 years, once in a lifetime. After seven weeks of seven months, seven months, seven years, 49 weeks, and all the multiplications of that Sabbath principle, you would have the 50th year. And that was the great Sabbath of Sabbaths. And debts were canceled. Isn't that wonderful? You owed $20,000 and you're listening to Dave Ramsey trying to figure out how to get out of debt. And Jesus comes along and he's like, just turn Dave Ramsey off. Remember in Leviticus, (laughs) every 50th year, debts canceled, land restored. And those were all physical foretaste of ultimate spiritual redemption. Spiritual debts canceled. Spiritual inheritance restored. It was never about the land and the debt per se. Jesus is telling us, and and how do we know that? Because Jesus never cleared anybody's debt financially in the Gospels. How do we know that? Jesus never got anybody's land back. In fact, in this very book, two brothers come to him, and they're arguing about an inheritance. And, teacher, tell my brother to give me the part of the inheritance that's mine. And Jesus says, take care and watch against all covetousness, because one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. Jesus is not an arbiter. He's not a civil magistrate in the sense that Israel was hoping and looking for. He said, the year of Jubilee has come. I am here. The year of the Lord's redemption. The day of the Lord has appeared. The Sabbath has come. Rest for the souls of God's people. Forgiveness of sins. Those who are spiritually poor and know that they are, who have nothing, who know that they are nothing. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that, Those who come to him know that they are poor. Those who come to him know that they are blind. Has that never uh, appeared to you as you've read the Gospels? The only people that come to Jesus are needy people. Um, We're all needy. In the book of Revelation, in the uh, seven letters to the churches that Jesus gives, there is one in which he rebukes a church, a local church, for thinking that they were Rich and reputable and had, a, had, a, had everything and clout and materialism and property and they they were, they were He said, "You think you have a name that you're rich? And Jesus says, "But you are poor, naked, miserable, blind, and wretched. And then he says, "I counsel you to buy from me. You don't have any money to buy it. That's the glory of the gospel, but I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the furnace, and I self so that you can see. He's saying, come to me and I'll give you the spiritual things that you need. I will take your poverty on myself. I will take your misery on myself. I will take your blindness on myself. I will take your oppression on myself. You know how I know this? Do you know how I know that I'm right about that and that you can go and check for yourself? Because Jesus will take all these things on himself. The apostle Paul will tell us, he made him who was rich become poor for your sakes, so that you who are poor may be rich. This is not health, wealth, prosperity. In fact, uh, his hometown people who are all relatively poor in Nazareth, most of them actually physically, financially don't have much. They, they're not going to get this. They're not going to see it. They don't want to see it. They want a king who will come, a politician who will give them materialism. They, they, they believe a health, wealth, prosperity, false gospel. And Jesus comes and says, I have something so much better, so much bigger, so much better for your souls, so much better for, for your life before God, both now and for all eternity. And this is amazing. At the end of this book, you know what Jesus does? He, he tells us, well, actually throughout the book. Jesus first tells us, and, and I went through and did this just for my own sake, but in in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, he says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no-. He became homeless. He didn't own any property. The infinite Son of God owned nothing. He had no house. He wandered, as it were, as a vagabond redeemer, healing and proclaiming the gospel, and yet he became impoverished. Luke will also tell us that he was taken captive in chapter 22, 54. They came and they arrested him. Isn't that interesting? To proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. Luke will tell us in Luke 22 that he was blindfolded in his sufferings. i have always been struck by that aspect of Jesus's the, the one who made the eye, who made light, who controls the world, who enables you to see and to hear, himself was, in a sense, blinded on his way to the darkness of Calvary for your sin and my sin. The one who healed the eyes of the blind was himself blinded. That is absolutely amazing. And then he is oppressed. He's nailed to the tree, Luke tells us in chapter 23. You see, Jesus undergoes all of those things, So that you and I can be not only the recipients by our ears, but the recipients by faith in our lives, in our souls, of the good news and the liberty and the deliverance and the restoration and the freedom that we so desperately need. That's what Jesus is preaching. What do you preach in your first sermon? That is, you know, you wring your hands. What can I preach? What can I preach? Jesus says this is what he preaches. This is the first thing Jesus preaches. Isn't that marvelous? In fact, in Isaiah 61, there's a little place where Isaiah is prophesying about judgment, and Jesus, for whatever reason, strategically leaves that out of this message. Now, people, they're they're astounded. They're marveling. They're like, who is this kid? It's It's like the kid that grows up in a small town and and is maybe bullied for a time, and then he goes on to become a celebrity or some famous athlete. Here is hometown Jesus. They knew him in the carpenter shop. They saw him walk the streets. They passed by. They had conversations with him. They had no idea that he could preach like this. They had no idea that he had knowledge like this. They had no idea that he could do all that he could do and and they're they're marveling notice verse 22 all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that you can imagine uh, one man in the synagogue leaning over to his wife and saying honey i mean are you listening to this kid i mean this is this the same kid we've known and uh they're speaking well and they're they're mar- apparently you were allowed to talk in the synagogue back then we discourage that sort of thing um, <laughs> and uh and and they're they're talking well of him and they're saying what, what gracious words. Like, and, and I think they are, they are hoping in this year of Jubilee, they're, they're looking for this day of the Lord, and they're waiting and watching in some sense. And notice when Jesus tells them, this is very important, verse 21, when he, when he preaches this message to them, he doesn't say, and this is super important, he doesn't say, today this has been fulfilled before your eyes. That's what they want by the way, they're going to want miracles. He says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Just let that just sink in for a second. So here is Jesus standing in front of the people, preaching Isaiah 61 and saying, I'm here. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Um. Everything about this passage, everything about the Bible, everything about Luke in specific is focusing on us. Uh, Are we going to believe what we hear from the word that God has given us in Scripture? That's it. Everything in Luke is are you going to believe what you have heard with your ears? Right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Remember... Jesus said in Luke's gospel about the rich man and Lazarus and the, the, the rich man's in hell and torments and, and asks if uh, Abraham could just send one, somebody back from the dead, Lazarus perhaps, that, that poor um, homeless man who sat outside of his gates, who's now in glory because he believed the word. And, and, and he said, please send somebody back from the dead. If somebody goes to them from the dead, they will believe and not come to this place of awful torment. And Jesus in that parable story perhaps says um, through Abraham, no, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they do not hear them, neither will they believe, even if some were raised from the dead. Um, At the end of this gospel, there actually are people raised from the dead who show themselves in Jerusalem and people still don't believe. Yeah. That's how hardened and blind our hearts are by nature. We will not believe apart from God's grace. Jesus' hometown uh, residents, his friends, his family, his, his neighbors, they didn't believe. Notice that he, he perceives among them that, that something's going on as they're processing this, as they're speaking well of him and they're marveling at these gracious words and, and, and they're talking about what they're hearing and seeing and who is this one? We've heard about him. They had heard. He, in his great perception, notices something's not right. By the way, ministers of the gospel, God often gives some kind of weird, you wish you could unplug it, some kind of weird discernment that people, something's not right sometimes when people are listening. You can just tell. You can tell when people, and it's not, you could have a smile on your face, and still not right. Something's not right. Um, it's a transmission thing, and Jesus was the master of transmissions, and he knows that they're not believing, and he knows that they have misplaced notions about the Redeemer. They, he knows that they want a, a, a man who can come and who can give them everything that they want religiously, politically, physically, materially. That's what they want. Give us that. And he is not that at all. He has come to reach into the souls of men and to touch the optic nerves of the hearts of people and make them see again. He is the heavenly physician, Martin Jones says, who can come and heal the optic nerve of the souls of men so that they can see what the world is, who God is, who they are. They can see everything properly. And Jesus says to them, notice, they they say at the end of verse 22, is this not Joseph's son? That is a question of unbelief, isn't it? He's he's not from one of the great rabbinical schools. This is the carpenter's son. Carpenters were despised. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, and I actually wonder who made the crosses out of wood for the Romans, maybe carpenters. They would have made the oxen yoke. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, likely, he may have referred to that. He may have been a mason, we don't know, working with stone and building in that way. But it's not a lucrative trade. And, and in Israel in those days, if your father was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. If your father was a priest, you would be a priest. It was Joseph and sons, carpentry. And Jesus is there, growing up in there. And, and they're saying, isn't this, the, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this Joseph's son? Uh, how is he going to fulfill this in our midst? How is he going to be the redeemer? And they're, now they're, they're doubting. And notice Jesus perceiving in verse 23 says to them, Doubtless you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you do in Capernaum, do also here in your hometown. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, You are not going to believe and you want signs and miracles because remember what the apostle Paul said, being a Jew himself, Jews want signs and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to Greeks, foolishness, but to those who believe both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God, but the Jews show us a sign, Jesus, his whole ministry, you read the gospel, show us a sign, show us a sign. He comes to Herod, Herod, oh, I get to see a sign. He's like a traveling magician to these people. They will not believe God's word. They will not believe God's Messiah, even though the spirit of God is on him indicating that he is the one who has come to redeem and who can do everything necessary. And everyone in that hometown hardens their hearts. Now, Jesus will go on to say a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And that is true. That is true. The uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, Men have a way of wanting to be jealous of others with gifts that they don't have. We are a total mess. Um, And we are full of self-righteousness. And Jesus is here putting his finger on the wound of the souls of those in his hometown. Now, remember I said it moved from uh, them being astonished and speaking well of him and marveling to them wanting to kill him. How do we get there? In like 0.2 seconds. (laughs) This is like we go zero to a thousand in like 0.2 seconds. Um, Here's what happens. Jesus perceives their blindness he recognizes that they don't want him who is the only Redeemer and only Savior. And so now he begins to preach to them again. And notice, he gives them two examples in verse 25 and following. He, he talks about um, one example from the life of Elijah the prophet, and then he gives us one example from the life of Elisha the prophet. Remember, Elijah was the great Old Testament prophet, mighty in word, mighty in deed, He was a type of Christ. He was pointing to Christ in a powerful way. Remember, he was charioted up to heaven bodily, uh, the only person in human history whose body went straight to glory. That's how great Elijah was. And then Elisha, who was his understudy, who asked for the double portion, saw him go into heaven, got the double portion, did twice as many miracles as Elijah— And they stand as a picture in a very real sense of John the Baptist and Jesus. They were the Old Testament types of John and Jesus. Jesus is greater than John. Elisha was greater than Elijah. And there are many miracles and accounts in the life of Elijah and Elisha, but there were two in particular. Now, you have to keep in mind that Jesus has in view here in this context um, the fact that his hometown is rejecting him. And this is such what a great grasp of scripture he has. So realizing the situation, he tells these two accounts, and he says, look, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. But remember, Elijah is, is rejected by Israel under Ahab. They reject him. The whole nation rejects the greatest prophet God ever gave them. Greatest prophet ever. Greater than John Calvin. Hard to believe as that may be. <laughs> Greatest prophet ever. And Israel rejects him, drives him into the wilderness and tries to kill him. And so what does God do? God brings him to a Gentile widow in Zarephath who has a little bit of grain and a little bit of oil. First Kings chapter 17, I believe, a little grain, a little oil, chapter 18, maybe. And, and Elijah, there's a, there's a famine and Elijah says to her, you know, give me something to eat. God has directed me to you. And she says, if I give you what I have, then I can't go into my house. I was just going to go in, cook it, eat, and then die with my boys. we were just going to die. And Elijah says to her, if you do as the Lord has said and you give me something to eat, your, your flour and your oil will not run out. And you know what that woman does? Without seeing a miracle, she believes She does the converse of what those in the synagogue in Nazareth do. She has no empirical proof that the grain and the oil are going to multiply. She has no reason to think this is true, except God has said it through the mouth of his prophet. And she does it, and the oil and the grain never run dry. Um, With Elisha and the account Jesus gives... He says there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the Pro- prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only name in the Syrian. Now, again, Israel rejected Elisha just like they had rejected Elijah and um, this commander of the Syrian army. And remember, if you're Israel, that's like ISIS. Right. ISIS general comes Syria, <laughs> Syrian. He comes. They've oppressed God's people. He's got leprosy. He hears that there is a great prophet who might be able to help him. His name is Naaman. He comes to Elijah and he sends word, "If can you heal me? And Elijah says to him, if you go down into the Jordan and you dip seven times, you'll be cleansed. And, and word gets back to Naaman and Naaman's like, that's crazy. He's like, we got rivers here in Syria. I mean, if that was the way he was going to do this, why didn't he come down here? And he actually says this. I thought he was just going to come and call in the name of his God and wave his hand over me. (laughs) He's looking for a magician. That's what unbelievers want. They want a magic incantation. And, and Elijah sends word back and he says, nope, this is it. Dip in the Jordan seven times. Wash. You'll be clean. And the servant says to Naaman, he's like, listen, if I were you, I'd be doing that. (laughs) You're dying of leprosy. You have no other chances. That's what he said. I think that he's right. You need to go do it. Naaman does what? The Gentile Syrian commander believes the word of God, goes to the Jordan, dips, washes, and is healed. Jesus has strategically chosen those two passages to tell the people that these Unworthy Gentiles did what you're not doing in my own hometown. Now, there is, there is a word there for us. Um, one of those words is that oftentimes people that sit under the pure word of God in church history have become exactly like the citizens of Nazareth in this day and time when Jesus appeared before them. And they harden their hearts to the word. And they get tired of hearing the word. And so, you know what the Lord does? He takes away the messengers. He takes the lampstand away. He says, fine, you don't want my word? You won't have my word. Um, That's essentially what's happening here. God is saying to Nazareth, just like I drove Elijah and Elisha to the Gentiles, I'm going to send my son to the Gentiles. If you will not have him, I will send him to people that I've chosen who will respond in faith who will take him at his word, who will rest the entirety of their spiritual lives on him. Now, I think it's interesting. I think Jesus is actually giving the people an opportunity to see their own blindness. Remember, the whole message at the beginning was, who did Jesus come to heal? The poor, right? The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed, spiritually, Oftentimes they also were physically that as, a, as an illustration. And here the people are illustrating their absolute blindness. That they, they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's everything Isaiah the prophet said. Uh, Go tell my people, God said. This was the message he gave Isaiah. Go tell my people, keep on hearing and do not hear. Keep on seeing and do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, lest they see with their eyes, lest they hear with their ears, lest they turn and I heal them. That was the message that Jehovah gave to Isaiah for Israel. And here Jesus is, in a sense, trying to get these people to see that they are exactly like Old Covenant Israel in the days of Elijah and Elisha. He is. Why? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? It, I mean, maybe you don't ask this question. I'm going to ask this question for us. Why does he stick it out? When they say, is this not Joseph's son? Why doesn't he just dip out? Because Jesus is showing himself to be the gracious Savior who bears along with the unrepentant, who continues to call the unrepentant back to him. He is trying to help them to see how hardened they are. And instead, notice finally, and I know this is um, a bit of a longer sermon, but the last point I want us to consider the malice very briefly. Notice that instead of realizing what they were doing, notice verse 28, they were filled with wrath. Now, there's always two, two ways of reaction to the word of God. Either men are cut to the heart and they cry out, what must we do to be saved? Or they gnash their teeth and they aim all of their wrath and self-righteous hostility at the one bringing the message of the gospel. Always two responses. Uh, it's impossible for there not to be a response. And here you see these people have turned and they've turned against Jesus and they, they thinking they deserve. By the way, that's the big thing. Don't miss that today. If you think you deserve anything spiritually good, then you are exactly like those in Nazareth. They think they deserve redemption. They, they think they have been fine, upstanding citizens and religious people. They think, how dare this kid come into our assembly and tell us we're blind? How dare he tell us that the Gentiles are going to get salvation, were the Jews. They were ethnocentric. They were racist. They were saying, we deserve salvation. That's ours by divine right. And notice that uh, in verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and there is more than one way to stone someone. You could either put someone in a pit and hurl big rocks at them like people did to the Apostle Paul till they were hopefully dead. Or you could bring them up on a cliff and push them onto the rocks. They are opting for this latter one. They are physically bringing Jesus out to stone him. They are bringing him out to throw him over the cliff onto the rocks. They hate everything about Jesus' message if we can just get rid of this one, if we can stop hearing, all of our problems are solved. And then you, you got to love this. I'll never forget as a young Christian reading this in verse thirty. I was just like, "Did he just say that?" But passing through their midst, he went away. It's just like <laughs> he just just walks right through them. They're left. They're, they're probably like it's like uh, awful show. say by the bell. Time out. Everything freezes, and he walks through and. <laughs> And just goes his way. Um, But what is important for us to see is that in this first interaction in his public ministry and the response of the people and the rejection of the people, Jesus is giving us a foretaste of how his ministry is going to end. His time has not yet come. He's got to go to the cross. He's got to take all the sin and rebellion and hostility, the wrath of God, He's got to take it all on himself. And in this first interaction, he's showing us he came to suffer. He came to die. This is not how he came to die. He will die by being nailed to the tree, oppressed, blindfolded, captive, impoverished, taking all of our sin, all of our captivity to sin, all of our blindness on himself. And when we see that, and when you see that with the eyes of faith, then everything he says here in the sermon out of Isaiah, you love. Isn't that marvelous? How did I go? I was converted 16 years ago, October 11th. How, how did I go from being so blind and dead in sins, hating everything in the scriptures, not wanting to hear it, wanting it to be just done, to loving everything in the scriptures? Well, I didn't do anything, ultimately. The Lord opened the eyes of my heart. He's done that for you if you're a Christian. He's enabled you to see who Christ is. He's enabled you to hear what he said he came to fulfill. And he makes us love the truth. He is the heavenly physician who touches the optic nerve of our hearts and makes us see. Um, I want to leave you with this this morning. If If you've never had the eyes of your hearts open to see who Jesus is and You know about him. You've heard him just like his hometown neighbors had heard him. Maybe you were astonished by his teaching. You've thought, well, yeah, he's a great teacher, greatest teacher ever. But you don't see that he is the ever-blessed God over all who stands in the place of his people, who alone gives eternal life, who is the year of the Lord's deliverance, who gives back his people everything that we've lost in the fall. Then go to him. Go to him like the blind men in the Gospels who cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. You know, I still do that. Not a week goes by in my life, I don't cry out, have mercy on me. That is the, that's what Christians do. Christians go to Jesus and they say, Lord, I take you at your word. I believe that you are the one on whom the spirit came. I believe that you are the one who delivers captives. I believe that you can open my blind and darkened eyes. I believe that you can give me liberty from the guilt and the power of my sin. And everybody that goes to him gets that for which they go. There's not one blind person in the gospel who cries out to Jesus that doesn't get healed. And there's not one sinner in this world who goes to Jesus in truth, in faith, taking God at his word, who doesn't get the redemption that Jesus has secured for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this morning, what the Spirit says to the church, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we know that there are many difficult things in your word and many sweet things in your word, and we thank you for a combination of both sweet and challenging things. We pray that you would grant us this morning increased faith. We pray that you would give us the grace to take you at your word, and Lord Jesus, to see who you are, even as you held yourself forth in the synagogue in Nazareth. We pray that you would give us all of the rich saving benefits that are freely ours by your grace. I pray that you prepare us now as we come to the table, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.